0: Amen. <clears throat> so you probably heard from Jr. there. There is a little bit of a warning this morning, nothing explicit, but, but uh, if you're watching at home or if you're in the room, this is a conversation that you may want to have with your child first before we talk about it today, because we are in this series called Won't You Be My Neighbor, and today, um, today we're talking through um, what it means to be a neighbor to those in the LGBT plus community. And and right away, already as we begin this, those that just seeing that it it starts to stir things in many of us. And so as we talk through this, um, we want to remember the things that we learned um, or that we've discussed already in this series, as we've talked about about things like racial racial minorities and the way that the way that our culture views racial minorities and the way that the biases that we may hold. We want to remember that. Our neighbor isn't bounded by geographical lines the way that we may want them to be and and our call to love those who may not live near us. And we want to remember that that Jesus established a pattern for loving our neighbor. He he answered the question of how to love our neighbor when he he addressed the the question of who is my neighbor by telling the story of what we commonly call the good Samaritan. Okay? Or or the Samaritan who had compassion. And so so today, we are going to talk through this. It's tough. For many of us, if we're honest, it makes us uncomfortable. There's no doubt that it's divisive. We're prone, as as followers of Christ, we're prone to to using cliches about this because cliches are safe. Um, Oftentimes, though, our cliches keep us from really examining our hearts and examining where we are when it comes to our neighbors. If we're honest, many of us as followers of Christ... We actually would confess and admit to feeling even attacked when it comes to issues of sexuality in our culture. But we also know that that personal sexuality is a complex web for each of us. There's factors like like, uh, our our attraction, who and who we are attracted to. There's personal history and psychology that, that plays into our sexuality. There's convictions that we hold that, that play a role in our sexuality as well. There's just physiology in our bodies. These are all part of the stories, a part of our stories. And as followers of Christ, we ought not to be silent on, on an issue that is, that's, that's so, um, so central in our culture. And so with that, <clears throat> I'm going to need your help this morning. <laughs> One of the reasons that churches avoid talking about this, can if I can, I just want to start with transparency. One of the reasons we avoid talking about sexuality is that, that especially for those of us who, who stand up here, who stand in front of you, there is, whether we admit it regularly or not, there is a, a tension that we feel about, about saying things perfectly, about having the right words at the right time all the time. Quite frankly, to put it simply, To stand here is to be vulnerable, okay? And so for this morning, I want to make some promises to you because I am vulnerable, but I also have responsibility in this setting. Um, I am not an expert. I'm not perfect when it comes to issues of sexuality by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I do have experience with this issue um, when I worked with young adults in, in a school setting, a Christian school setting I, I, over over a ten year span, I probably spoke with dozens of young people who were questioning their sexuality, who were certain that they were they were homosexual, they were gay that, that, that they they believed that they were engendered incorrectly and and I, I helped students I did the best I could with god 's guidance to walk through those issues with students, but even in those situations and loving those students, I know that that, that I failed them. And we're going to talk today about those kinds of things um, and how we, how we walk with our neighbor who, who identifies as LGBT+. But I promise these things, okay? I'm going to make mistakes. I will make mistakes. Um, I promise I'm going to leave things out. This is a long conversation and I do have a fixed amount of time. You're thankful for that, I know. And in public speaking 101, one of the first things you teach someone is to never complain about the amount of time they have to address a topic. But we're just not going to have enough time this morning to say everything. And so there's going to be things that in this conversation that you feel like must be said. And I just promise I, there's things on your list that I won't get to. I won't be able to say. doesn't mean I disagree with them. I just won't be able to get to them. I promise that I'm going to be open to further discussion on this, which means, by the way, I don't believe that I have the final word on on homosexuality, on gender. And I also promise that we're not going to bait and switch, okay? We're we're not going to pretend to be something that we're not. And what that means is that, that we're going to talk about this openly, but we're going to be honest with what we believe that the scriptures teach and what God has led us to. But I'm also asking for your help. Will you promise that as I make mistakes, you'll give me grace? That you'll help me where I don't fully understand? Would you promise that where I don't have enough time for everything, that you won't just make assumptions and fill in gaps? But rather, if there's more clarification that's needed, you'll seek it. Will you promise not to dismiss when you hear something you disagree with? It's, it's going to happen this morning. Something is going to, to strike you in a way that, that causes a, a reaction and will you promise to listen to the whole this whole thing and not just the parts that maybe you agree with or, or, and ignore those you disagree with? Or would you promise to listen to the whole and not just simply reject the whole out of hand because something was said that you found disagreeable? I'm asking for your help with this. And we need to start here. As I said, we, um, we have no intention of 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 pretending or pulling a bait and switch. So I want to be very clear that we believe certain things about human sexuality. We believe the scriptures reveal God's design for humanity is is heterosexual monogamy. Essentially, that we were designed for a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. We believe that's what the scriptures teach. Don't bail out now. For some of you, that's the thing that we don't want to hear. But don't bail out now. Because I would also say this. As with almost everything, we want, to, we want to say this with a lot of humility. This is what we believe the scriptures have taught us. And we admit that the whole of scripture isn't really overly concerned with this issue. The, the totality of scripture is not about human sexuality. It's about something else. But when this issue comes up, we, we want to be careful because because we don't want we don't want to give someone the idea that we stand somewhere that we don't. There's been some recent uh, well, some recent attempts within the church within the last decade or so to sort of reinterpret the Bible so that that position is something other than heterosexual monogamy, but but quite frankly I believe that these attempts fall flat. I believe the scriptures do teach that that where sexuality is at at, at issue that that. God's design for us is, is that we have one partner and that that partner is in a heterosexual relationship. So when we look at this, um, we want to be honest, but, but, that's, but that's really all we're going to say about our position this morning. Because this morning isn't really about where we stand on the issue, but rather it's about how we stand when it comes to our neighbor. We're going to talk about our posture this morning. And in order to do that, we want to take a look at, at Jesus. He is the example not only of what to believe, but of how to hold our beliefs in, in light of who our neighbor is. If you have a Bible and you'd turn to John chapter 4, okay? John chapter 4. And we'll, we'll have this on the screen for you, whether you're at home or here in the room. But if you have a Bible, John chapter 4 is going to be where, we will, where we'll be. One of the unique things that comes up in any conversation about sexuality in the Bible, particularly when it comes to issues of, of homosexuality, is that Jesus himself never condemned it. And the fact of the matter is that when it comes to direct statements about homosexuality, Jesus did never speak to it. Um, it's, there is no direct mention of Jesus in any of the Gospels about homosexuality. In fact, there's only a handful of places where the issue is, is talked about. But we ought to be careful trying to make an argument about, about homosexuality specifically from a, any silence that the Bible May make because there was there were great differences in the ancient world between the ancient world at large or the Gentile culture and the specific local culture that Jesus ministered in, the Jewish culture, and the Jewish culture had a high uh, a high um, holding for their law, and in their law there were explicit prohibitions on homosexual behavior. And so homosexual behavior in first century Jewish culture was almost non-existent. Not only does Jesus not mention it, but in, in all of the histories of the of the Jewish people, you rarely find any mention of it except when it's mentioning it in the Gentiles or specifically in the first century, the illicit sexual behavior of like the Herods or the, the Gentiles who were in the land ruling the people. It gained it, it mention there, but not when it came to the Jewish people. And so... Jesus' silence on the issue shouldn't surprise us, because the people that he was engaged with, the the, the people that he was face-to-face with, it was, quite frankly, an issue that wasn't prevalent in their specific local culture. And so if he went out of his way to say something about it, that first-century audience would have found it very odd, But that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't speak to, to purity, It doesn't mean that he doesn't address issues of of holiness when it comes to our bodies and our sexuality, but but he does it in a way that is so unique from the ways that we tend to to handle this. So if you're in John chapter 4, we're going to take a look at this. Would you read it it with me? John chapter 4, verse 1. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, this is John the Baptist. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he, had, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So there's, with all these passages, so much context But there's a couple unique things about this. Jesus is leaving Jerusalem to go to Galilee. He's traveling from south to north. And as he's traveling between these two regions, Judea and Samaria, was the region of the Samaritans. Now, again, in this series, in the very first week, we talked about how much the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. They didn't get along. So much so that normal travel patterns... It would, it would have, the Jews, when they were traveling between Jerusalem and, 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 and uh, Galilee, they would have actually gone way out of their way to go around Samaria and not pass through it. It would be the equivalent for us by automobile saying, I hate Indiana so much. I went to college there. I'm not going to comment on whether or not this is a practice that we ought to engage in, but I hate Indiana so much that I'm going to drive down south and go around and up into Illinois if I have to travel to Illinois. Okay? they would go way out of their way to avoid even setting foot in these places. Now it tells us though that Jesus did this. Okay? He did this. He goes, he goes through the region of Samaria. And, and not only that, but he's sitting at a well, and it says he's sitting at the sixth hour. Now, the way that that's not 6 a.m., it's not 6 p.m. the way that the, the Jewish clock worked. That's actually noon. Okay, that's high noon. Now, unlike here. Okay? I, I got stuck in a chick fil line yesterday. You know the chick fil Like, I got stuck in one for quite a while yesterday. Um, unlike here, noon is, is not a time where like, things are stacked up around the well. Noon is a time where it's hot. Okay? It's a time where, where people aren't going to the well because of, because of the weariness of it. It's also a time where people might go to the well because they hadn't for whatever reason, they hadn't drawn their water already early in the day. The normal practice was at sunrise, people, particularly in this culture, the women would go to the well, would draw their water, and they'd have a day's worth of water in their, in their home or on their land from that, from that morning trip. So, so when we think about, like, high noon, we want to think about, like, you know... I on? Oh, now I'm on. Okay, okay. Um, so we wanna, we wanna, when we think about noon at the well, we want to think that it's, it's like the middle of the afternoon at, at Chick-fil-A. Like it's the time where you might go if you wanted to avoid the crowd, okay? So keep reading with me. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And here's just in case we were confused, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay? Now, this is interesting. Jesus is in a place, we would say, Jesus is in the wrong place at the wrong time. Okay. This is not where he should be if he's going to meet the, the, anyone of of high standing, it's not where he's going to be. If he should, if he if he wanted to encounter someone that was in some way appropriate for him to be with, it was not the time for someone to be drawing water. It was not a well where a Jew should be. It wasn't even a place, a, a, a geographical area where a Jew should set foot. We might say that 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 um, this would be a place where the Jews would have had real social distancing. Okay, like. In fact, there's a, there's a term for this prior to us talking about social distancing that we might call power distance. The power distance is the distance that, it, that the lowest person in a culture is from the highest person in a culture. Right? That's the power distance. How many steps must, must the lowest person go through before they can get an audience with the highest person in their culture? And in this scenario, you have a great gap between Jesus, who was a rabbi, Jesus, who was a teacher who had his own disciples and a Jew and this woman who's drawing her water at a Samaritan well at the wrong time of day. So keep going. Oh, and Jesus, but Jesus' statement, he says, if, if you knew who was asking, he sort of hints at this power distance. There's a, there, is a, there is a real distance be, between the power of Jesus and the power of this woman, both culturally, but also in reality. He says, if you knew, you would have asked me for for living water. So look at verse 11. Keep reading with me. So she says, okay, I'll bite. (laughs) The woman said to to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water from that you're offering me? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to drink water. So she says, okay, I'm going to bite on this idea. You've said something strange about living water, and she bites on it. Okay, And he makes this offer, and he illustrates the offer. And Jesus, Jesus says that, that, that here's, here's this scenario that that every, every, every drink that you take, congratulations, you're honoring your forefathers. You're honoring the precedent that came before you. You're honoring the value that they, that they added, that they provided, so that you could now sustain life from this well. But Jesus says, I supersede all of that. Okay? Yes, I am saying that I'm, in many ways, and in and, and the most important way, I'm better than your father, Jacob. I have more to offer you than the water you receive from this well that he provided. So she says, give me this water so that I'll be thirsty. Keep reading, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. This is, again, this is a a social moment. This is probably, in fact, given the power distance between these two, even just culturally, culturally. It would have been really inappropriate for Jesus to even be having this conversation with this woman, even without what we're about to find out. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So there's this thing about this woman, and it explains why she's there at noon, why she's drawing water at a time of day when the well should be abandoned. But Jesus, being Jesus, knows he's not in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's exactly where he intended to be with the person he intended to be with at exactly the time he intended to be there. He takes that power distance that's real, and he closes it. And he sits with her. Even given the fact that not only was she a a Samaritan woman, not a Jew, not only was was she a Samaritan general, but she was a woman in that culture, not only that she she was she was someone that certainly in this town would have been known to have a reputation for being for, for, for being a woman who was who, who was not faithful to her husband. Everything that could be going against her was going against her, and Jesus knows it and he acknowledges it right? it 's there it 's in the conversation they were they, there was Every bit the reason for Jesus to keep his distance from her, as we may have to keep our distance from anyone in our culture. And yet he sat there beside the well. Keep reading verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. She tries to change the subject from from her infidelity, from, from the reputation that she had. Now, Jesus is still with her, okay? He hasn't left, He hasn't. he's not ostracizing himself from her. He understands her social position and he stays. And Jesus, this is fascinating to me because Jesus steps into the conversation that she's willing to have. Do you catch this? He steps into the conversation that she's willing to have. Jesus allows her to dictate the terms of the conversation. He doesn't say, no, 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 rewind the tape and let's talk about your infidelity. He doesn't say, we can't have this conversation about worshiping God, about worshiping Jehovah, until you get your life together. He doesn't say any of those things. He enters into the conversation, he says this. He says, a time is coming where true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, where there is, there is there, there's a, there's a, there's a, an alignment between our feelings and our thoughts. That's, that time is coming. Keep reading with me. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. Christ is the chosen one, the Messiah, the anointed one. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the, this is the climax of the encounter. This is, this is the moment that Jesus was there for, was for his identity to be revealed to this woman. Do we catch that? That's important. He didn't go there so that she would stop her behavior. He didn't go there so that he could make some sort of social statement. He went there so this woman would come, into, come face-to-face, would have an encounter with who he really is. This is a moment. And, gee, if, and what he's essentially saying is that I'm the answer now, what are you going to do about me? What are you going to do with this reality? I'm revealing who I am. Everything else, all these other issues, where we worship, how we worship, who are the chosen people, who are, all of those issues, they really are insignificant compared to this one. Who am I, Jesus says. Who am I? Keep reading. Just then, verse 27, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Do you catch this? Like, does this, this, his disciples get it? You've crossed over so many lines socially in the power structure in order to have this conversation. Verse 28, so the woman let her, water jar, let her water jar and went away, left her water jar and went away, that's why it doesn't sound right, and went away into town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. <laughs> so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? <laughs> like, I, I think that's a brilliant aside. Like, does he have, do he have like a, like a euro in his pocket? Like, what's going on here? Okay. But there's these, this sort of back and forth in the narrative, right? The disciples know exactly how unusual this encounter is, but no one dared speak to it. They knew enough about Jesus, and this is actually early in the narrative, in John's narrative, but they knew enough about Jesus to know that the lines that society or that their, that, that their culture had set up for them, that those lines were pretty meaningless to him. Okay? That he ignored the social constructs of who was supposed to be with who. Meanwhile, as they approach, notice what happens to her. His disciples show up and she says, now it's time to get out of here. Boy, that's, there's again, remember those things that we don't have time to talk about in one one talk? But I I find that fascinating, that she takes off as the other men show up. But she goes back, and she shares. Did you catch this? She shares. She shares, and people believe her. But, of course, the disciples end with confusion again. We've got to keep moving. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Did you catch? So, so what Jesus is saying is, look, look out across the the world, look out across where we are, look at the situation that we find ourselves in, and here's what you're going to find. You're going to find people everywhere who need Jesus, who need the answer that Jesus was and still is. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years. The people that we encounter, those sitting at the well at noon, those who are on the outside of whatever social power that we may hold, there's a harvest that's ready. There's work that has been done, but there's still laborers that need to go out and reap the harvest. So the end of the story is this, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to, to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This one, the woman was, was changed by this encounter with Jesus. She was changed by her time with Jesus, so much so that she went back to the people, and the people also met Jesus. More about that, okay? We're going to say more about that. But as we, as we discuss this, we talk a little bit more about this. Remember, we, we talked about a position, right? We, we started with that, and we said, there is a position, And Jesus also had a position on human sexuality. He did. Indeed, you don't have a husband. The man you're with is not your husband. You've had five other husbands. It was a reality of the situation between them. But he doesn't belabor it. It doesn't become the point of what he's trying to say. But he had a position. In order to try and illustrate this, I brought a hula hoop. And I will not be attempting to. To hula this hoop, okay, um, but I have a hula hoop, and I want to use this as a sphere to say, this that it's it's unbroken, okay, that I can have, I can get in this hoop, and and this hoop can represent my position. I have it, okay. It's, it's what I believe to be true, and right. It's what I believe that God has has entrusted about Himself to me through His Word. I have a position but there's more than just a position because in a position we also have a posture right we also have a posture when in every position that we stand we have a particular posture so i'm going to drop this because i need my hands but i'm still in my position nothing about that has changed okay but i can take very different postures within my position right i can put up my fists and that communicates something about the way that I'm holding my position. I can also put my head down and stare at the floor. And it communicates something about the position in which I stand. I can do this. I can turn my back and say, I'm not going to deal with anything outside of my position. I can go so far as to get down on my knees, right? But even within this, there's subtlety, isn't there? Because if I'm on my knees like this versus maybe like this, it communicates something. Our posture matters every bit as much as our position. Jesus understood this, right? Right? He he wasn't shying away from the truth but he was sitting in the wrong place at the wrong time talking to the wrong person because he didn't believe that his position prohibited him from engaging his neighbor and engaging them in love and acceptance even though even though there was nothing hidden between them, that she was living in in a way, in a life, that violated the principles of his position on human sexuality. His posture was this, right? Embrace. He embraced her while staying in his position. Do we catch this? And take it a step further because here's the deal, right? Let's say that Jesus needed to get from here to the soundboard. But between him were all of these sinful people. Watch what he did. This is pretty fascinating, right? He took his position with him through Samaria. And when he sat down next to her, he sat down with that position intact. You see, going into Samaria, going to where sinners are... In no way, shape, or form did it cause Jesus to be any less righteous than he was beforehand. It didn't sully him. It didn't make him incapable of being a perfect sacrifice for our sins. He went. He went in, in truth. He maintained his position. But he had a posture. He had a posture. Remember the pattern of Jesus that we saw in the story of the compassionate Samaritan, where he told, it, he told a story about this pattern? And notice how, it, how he lived it here in this encounter. Remember the first thing that Jesus did, in, or that he told, he talked about in the story of the good Samaritan, was that, was that the Samaritan stopped along the road, whereas others went by the person who was lying there, left for dead. Jesus stopped and he entered into their pain. Just like this in Samaria, he enters into Samaria. He doesn't go around it, he goes through Samaria. He sits at the well at the wrong time of day. This woman could have very easily been avoided. Even once once Jesus is sitting there and the woman approaches, he probably could have given her a polite hello and then gone about with his life which is what I tend to do when I come across people that I feel social distance from. But that's not what he did. He cared, and he sat with her, and he spoke to her, and he engaged her. So what does it mean for us to stop along the road in the pain of our LGBT plus neighbors? What does it mean? As believers in Christ, I think we have to acknowledge the pain of the lgbt plus individual indifference is not an option that's available to us i get it this is those of you who haven't been offended yet this is probably the point where you're getting uneasy with me but here's the reality jesus wasn't engaging in the culture war because what posture does war take on it's combative I feel it, I get it. I was taking my son to college visits in the last 12 months and people introducing themselves with their their pronouns in place and and talking about their gender identity, their sexual orientation. It was the the first step. It was the lead-in to their identity and who they were. I get it. I really, I do, I feel it. But if we're waiting for them, and even the language of us and them is not helpful here. So if we're waiting for them to make the first move, we're not following the way of Jesus. If we're looking for, now that maybe the cultural power has shifted from the time I was a boy to now, the cultural power may have shifted on this issue. And if we're waiting for those in power to accommodate us, that's not the position that Jesus took. Jesus moved towards them, not away. There is a great deal of pain in this community. The community of our our neighbor, from the LGBT plus community, the individuals, often it takes years It takes years from the moment they may suspect something is different about them to the time that they disclose that to others. There's a term for it just called the disclosure gap. And during that disclosure gap, there's anguish that goes on in them. With the disappointment they know they're going to be presenting to their parents, to their friends, if they're in the church, to their, their churches. There's anticipated judgment There's isolation, the belief that no one's struggling like I am. There's depression. There's enormous, enormous rates of suicide. No matter what position we hold, this ought to break our hearts. Our neighbors are dying because they feel alone. They feel like no one cares. Is it any wonder the confidence that comes when many of these people do reveal the relief and happiness that comes with the consistency between their internal and external lives, why so many people are are significantly happier when when they come out and admit where they are, what they believe, what their dreams are when it comes to their sexuality. This is a community with a great deal of pain. A community with a great deal of pain. And it doesn't matter, it ought not to matter, if we believe that we're under attack when our neighbor is in pain. Jesus was compelled to move into that pain. And he sets an example for us. I've got to keep moving. Remember in the story of the Good Samaritan, the, the, the Samaritan, or the compassionate Samaritan, get, he meets the needs. He meets the needs of, uh, of the man left on the side of the road for dead. In John chapter 4, Jesus simply acknowledges and affirms the value of this woman. Might, again, the distance between a rabbi in that culture and any woman, let alone a woman who was, who was branded and identified as the unfaithful wife in the town, that gap alone should never be bridged. And it, it, That woman would have had no value. Her only value would have been found in her body and what she was providing sexually to those people in in her life. And Jesus moves towards her and says, you are worth having an honest discussion about your soul, about the truth, about what it means to anticipate the coming Messiah. You are worth that. Jesus focused on her spiritual need You see, coming to Jesus is what heals people. We don't get cleaned up so that we can go meet him. We meet him because he's the one who cleans us. And and for for too long, I'm just compelled that as a believer in Christ, for too long I've believed that those things are in reverse. I've believed that people needed to get their act together so that they could somehow come meet Jesus. I feel I've got to repent of that but I also feel like I'm not alone. So this question has has been hounding me since I knew that this Sunday was coming and I was talking about this. And the question is this, what do I see as the greatest need of my LGBT plus neighbor? Do I believe their greatest need is to have their attraction changed? Is that what I believe? Or do I believe that they are an eternal human being made in God's image who needs Jesus? Every bit as much as I do. Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, he says, Accept one another as Christ accepted you. How did Christ accept me earlier in Romans? Paul writes that that while I was in my sin, that's when Christ died for me. At my worst. And here's the thing. Anything I can accuse them of being guilty of, I'm guilty of as well. My desires run wild in my life. Accept one another as Christ accepted you. If the root of the pain of our LGBT plus neighbor is rejection and isolation from God and his people, isn't this where we can do something? Isn't, it, isn't, isn't this a place where we can do something? But by ostracizing, by refusing to go near, by setting up standards or, 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 or barriers that keep us from relationship with them, we simply reinforce the belief that, that God's people, and by extension, God himself, doesn't find them very lovable. And this often takes place at points in time when when folks are extremely vulnerable. I believe that it's, it's most important that our LGBT neighbors experience the love of God's people because it's through that love that they come to know the love of God himself. And to wrap it up, Jesus returned over time in the story of the Good Samaritan, he, he, he says that the Good Samaritan, came, he made a promise to come back and pay all the cost that the man along the road had incurred. And in this story, Jesus hangs on in Samaria a couple days. He doesn't say, well, it's safe to pass through during daylight, but I better get out of here <laughs> at night. He stays. He built meaningful relationships based on genuine acceptance of who they were. Always prompting them towards the holiness of his father. But not outside the boundaries of acceptance for who they were when he encountered them. Because I believe that for Jesus, the path to health passes through acceptance and fellowship. Not through some gauntlet of of scorn and exclusion. That we only come to health by entering into meaningful, powerful relationships with God and others. I'm get, I know my time is passed up. Okay, <laughs> and I'm going to wrap up with this. And I'm, I'm I, I, I've used this as a line for many, many years. I, I'm the person who first said it. That I heard first say it will remain anonymous. I didn't get a chance to speak with them before this, but we had a, a, a friend in college who um, post college um, distanced herself from the rest of us and um, and in conversation with another person, laid out the fact that that she was identifying as as homosexual. she was a lesbian, she believed she'd been that her whole life, that the dating relationships she'd been in were attempts to sort of like maneuver around the reality that she was attracted to other women and she just laid it out. This is someone that we, we served with and ministered with and prayed with and was a part of our, a, a very central part of our Christian community when I was in college. And then she asked like the million dollar question, right? <laughs> Again, not of me, I wasn't present. But she said, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? Now, what she's really asking is, there's all this stuff in the background, right? Do you still love me? Am I, am I still your friend? And um, this, this third party who was asked the question, who, who had the conversation, simply said, um, I think that the most important thing is what you do with Jesus. Christ and the Holy Spirit are more than enough to tell you about your sexuality I'm willing to walk through it with you. Wherever it takes us, I'm your friend. I love you. That's what I think about that. That's been a model for me now for two decades. As I've worked with young people, I'm not perfect. I've screwed this one up. But within the church, within our community, we need to let people know that we love them, as Christ loves them, that they're welcome, as Christ welcomes them. Now, there's so many questions. I get it, right? Because even, even as I say that, I know, I know, I've run these conversations in my head thousands of times, all the yeah buts. And this is where I would say this is probably much better as a week-long seminar where we can discuss but we have this fascinating thing around here called cell groups. <laughs> We're always talking about it. If you're sitting here this morning and saying, gosh, there's a lot more to say about that, I know. If you're not in a group, jump in one. Have some conversations about it. Let's talk about it. If you're not in one, find one. If you are in one, be there. Engage this conversation. How is this lived out? How can we do it? And I want to leave you with this resource. Um, Lead them home, lead them the name is what it is. Okay. I will endorse this as much as I'll endorse just about any resource. <laughs> when it comes to the fact that th- these are folks who take the Bible seriously and who have a have a, a, a position on human sexuality that mirrors ours, that, that is the same as ours, but also do a ton of heavy lifting with people in, in the LGBT plus community. I promise you that they're biblical. I promise you that they are that they, that they are tireless when it comes to loving their neighbor, to loving, to loving families who are walking through this with, with children and siblings and others who are who are saying, I I think I'm probably gay. What do we do from there? If you don't know where else to go, I would encourage you to go there. This is also going to be on my LCC, on, on on the weekly resources for today. It's a great place to start. I would encourage you to look at some of their things, maybe even before group this week, before you go. Would you pray with me? Lord, um, I just want to love people the way you love people. And even now, the recognition of how unlovable I am compared to you, compared to what I ought to be. So God, I ask, I ask for forgiveness from you for the ways that I've taken people made in your image that, that you love and I've said that they're not worth my time, they're not worth my attention. I pray for the courage to, um, to move towards others, God, I pray for the patience, with, um, I pray for, the patience for, um, for the process. I pray for the patience um, with brothers and sisters as I know we will disagree about the details. I, God, I trust that, that we share your heart, that our, our neighbor is in need. Would you help us? Would you help us with truth? Would you help us with, with kindness and compassion and patience? Not again. Not just with those outside, but with one another. And God, um, we pray all this, Jesus, because of who you are and what you've done in the the wells you sat next to, so that we could have a relationship with you. And we pray in Christ's name, Amen.